I don't know. I don't know. I had a lot of trouble getting everything ready for today. Um, I got a new iPhone. I talked about this last week. I will actually talk about the cool stuff around here in a moment as well. But I've got a new iPhone. Signed into my normal Google account, the one I use to watch all my YouTube videos and my personal stuff, and didn't sign in to my YouTube account that I use just for these things and all the other sort of professional things. Uh, that turned out to be a hard thing because I have Google Advanced Protection turned on everything, which means that you've got to have your second factor of authentication, which means it needs to be a hardware security key. Now, fortunately, I have two of those, and I have one stored securely at home, and that's the old USB one, and then I've got another one, which is a Bluetooth one, which I use to authenticate to devices like this, and I carry that with me. But that, I don't know, like it didn't have charge or it wouldn't connect and I'm just going like round and round and round again in this like vicious cir cycle, circle, cycle, <laughs> trying to get the Bluetooth to connect to the phone so that I can authenticate to like the Google, what do they call it, safe key thing, whatever it is. <laughs> so then I can get into the YouTube account and then I realized I'd left my nice Rode microphone at the last hotel. So now I'm on the little uh, lapel one here, which hopefully sounds okay. Uh, there are a bunch of people in here, so if, if it's, if it's, well, <laughs> if you can't hear me, tell me. If it sounds terrible, let me know. Neil's there. Hi, Neil. Uh, hi from Sydney. Where are you? I'm going to talk about where I am in just a moment. Let me do all the sponsor things first, and then I'll jump into all the cool stuff. Brendan's here. I'm surrounded by devices. I've got my phone here, new iPhone 14 Pro Max, <laughs> my iPad here, and my laptop here. I figure between the three different devices, we'll make this work. Neil says sound is good. Awesome. There's something to be said about just like literally hardwiring a cable <laughs> to your device and taking out all the middle, middle bits and pieces that can go wrong. Sponsor first, because there is, of course, still a sponsor. Veronis, one of my uh, longest-term sponsors. Reducing your SAS blast, SAS, SAS <laughs> blast radius with data-centric security for AWS, G-Drive, Box, Salesforce, Slack, and more. Go and check out the... Uh, the Veronis bits, and look again, I've spoken about Veronis many times. One of the companies I have actually spent a bunch of time with in person, and it's not uh, not a sort of a, you know, it sounds like they're nice. <laughs> These are good people. That advantage, that advantage cloud, the new stand in data security, in cloud security. Uh, I saw someone recently tweeting some of the, um, the Veronis courses I've done as well, so they're still out there as well. We've done a bunch of stuff over the years. I think I've spent time with Veronis in definitely the Middle East, London, San Francisco, I think Australia. I remember Australia. Anyway, good folks, doing good stuff. Please go and check them out because uh, them continuing to support me allows me to come to places like this and do cool videos. <laughs> Look at the comments here. Jason, Jason's in Toowoomba. A long way from Toowoomba now, mate. Um, let me answer the question from Neil about where I am. Uh, in fact, maybe I'll do the chronology because last week uh, after the wedding, <laughs> we, uh, we did this video from home back on the Gold Coast. I must have done that. When was that? Jeez, it's all becoming a blur so quickly. It would have been Friday, something like that. Uh, absolutely amazing weddings, super, super. Happy about that. Still waiting to see the, the professional photos, the good ones. You know, so all I've got at the moment is stuff from friends. Uh, and I'm desperately, desperately waiting to see those, those final ones. We came to Bali, I think about six days ago. Now, I had... Some of you are from Australia, so you know the Australian connection to Bali and the connotations that they have. Uh, some of you are not, so I'll explain it. But Bali, in my mind, was always the place that... Australians went to get drunk cheaply. <laughs> now, I was wrong on multiple levels there, uh, but that was sort of the connotation where you'd have like the, uh, the, the drunk Aussie tourist and they come home with the Bing Tang tank top and you know they've just been there doing stupid stuff in Kuta. So I was never keen on coming to Bali. And then in the early 2000s, I had a couple of terrorist attacks which were just super, super nasty, uh, impacted Australia in particular because we have so many tourists here. And it just really turned me off. Now, mind you, I kept going back to London and New York and places like that, but I just always had this mental connotation of Bali. And, and the reason we ended up deciding to, to come here as, as opposed to somewhere else, first of all, we're allowed to go overseas again now. <laughs> so this is still fairly, feels fairly novel to us. Uh, and then we looked at it and went, well, where do we want to go? And we're thinking about, you know, wanted something like 
tropical because that just feels like good honeymoon stuff. And we're thinking about going like the Maldives or something like that. And there are two big problems with that. Uh, number one, every time I looked up somewhere cool in the Maldives, it was like a hut uh, above this blue water with a water slide out of your accommodation, which looked amazing, but I'd feel guilty every time I did it for not having the kids there. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of stuff I want to do with the kids. There's a bunch of stuff I want to do without the kids. So that was, uh, I would have had the guilt. And then the other thing is to go to the Maldives from Australia, you've got to fly to Singapore, not so bad. But then you've got to fly from Singapore and it's another fairly significant trip from there, from memory. And suddenly you're starting to have a, a, a long duration of travel. Uh, and also I think it was about four hours off time zone wise. So it's just enough to be jet lagged. So the thing about Bali is it's only two hours behind Gold Coast time zone wise. And normally it's a short flight. So normally from Brisbane, it'd be six-ish hours. Now, unfortunately, because I don't want to just blame Qantas for this, but because of the way travel has changed, we had to go to Sydney first, hang out there for a couple of hours, and then fly to Denpasar. And then going back, we've got to go to Melbourne and hang out there for a while, and then get back to Brisbane, and then drive home. So it has made it harder than it should be, but it's not like going to so many other places we'd normally go, like Europe, and it's yeah, 24 to 30 hours of travel and, and jet lag. So that's why we decided to come here, and then... Charlotte, because she is the, the ultimate organiser of all things, uh, found the accommodation. So she, we, we just had four days in uh, Uluwatu, which is like the very bottom of Bali, uh, at this Bulgari resort, which was all things that you'd expect from a resort. It's like sparkly pools and beaches and you know, waves. And, uh, of course, there's waves and beaches. <laughs> but it's all the, uh, I guess, all the sort of tropical stuff that you'd expect. And that was... That was exceptional. That was, it's, it's up there with the top few places I think we've stayed anywhere. Uh, so that was quite amazing. We just spent a lot of time like laying around the pool and learning the thing that I didn't know before coming here. And this is one of the things that has totally transformed my opinion on Aussies coming here to just drink cheap beer. Um, this is apparently one of the highest export duties anywhere in the world or import duties on wine. <laughs> what do I mean by that? I mean, it was very hard, at least in the last place, it's much more reasonable here, it was very hard to buy a bottle of wine for less than 200 Australian dollars. Now, for the folks of you in, uh, in Australia that would recognise some of this, things like, uh, what is it, Shaw, Shaw plus Smith Sauvignon Blanc, which we pay like $20 or something for, is literally $200 at the last place. So uh, we didn't have much, much at all of that. Like it's, it's just stupidly, exorbitantly expensive. Uh, and it's, it's mostly import duties. So that was a little bit nuts. Super, super nice people. Food, really, really good. Uh, I love Asian food of all, most parts of Asia. <laughs> I won't say which of the parts I don't like the food from as much. But Indonesian food is just amazing. So we've just been super enjoying the food there. We spent four nights uh, down there at the beach, and then yesterday we've come up here, and this is called uh, Capella Ubud. And in my tweet thread of epic photos, that's in there. But the thing that this has going for it, as you can see from the shots here, is it's, it's not beachy at all, it's, it's jungle. You're up in the mountains. According to the altimeter in my Apple Watch, <laughs> we're 350 meters up uh, at the moment. So it's, it's a very different vibe. Uh, it's a really, really different hotel. So where the Bulgari one is all like, you know, fancy this and modern and all the rest of it, this is meant to look like, uh, sort of like a colonial explorer's cottage, right? Where it's, you know, I imagine this is what they lived like. Well, not quite, <laughs> but a lot of this is meant to look like what they lived like, you know, 100, 150 years ago when they're exploring the, the Far East. So, looking around me here, and, and this is in some of the photos as well, but it's, um, it's sort of a, a lot of traditional design, but all of the modern stuff gets hidden. So I started taking photos, because some of it's quite cool. So they have like, you know, this old lantern you can see just down to my bottom left here in frame. Like it looks like an old lantern from a cabin, uh, and it's got an LED globe in it. <laughs> so it hides it, you gotta go up and have a little look. Or all the PowerPoints in the room, are hidden behind these little panels so everything looks like it very very close to what it would have looked like a long time ago and all the modern stuff just gets hidden away 
Um, I can see a... The only thing I've seen that sort of really stood out is there's like a fire hydrant <laughs> in bright red, but, you know, I guess people don't want to get burned down, so there's that. And then a lot of it as well is very... Um, I was explaining to Shark, she hadn't heard the term before, but it was very like Jules Verne, 20,000 legs under the sea, nautilus kind of design with, with lots of like brass and wrought iron and overly complicated devices to like fill the water in the pool, which is pretty cool. The, the claim to fame for this place is they won the best hotel in the world from a magazine, <laughs> was it Life and Travel or something, two years ago. So, you know... Who knows if there's other ones that have won other awards for similar sorts of things, but uh, it is very, very distinctive. And I, I kind of like liked being by the beach. I'm a very beachy kind of guy. But back in the last spot, you sort of, it, it's like one of those places where like you go into the resort and then you don't really go anywhere else, and you do feel like you miss a lot of the culture. Uh, and I think some of my fondest memories growing up for several years in Singapore and then doing a lot of travel around Asia is actually getting out and seeing interesting places. Now that's more of what this place is, so that's what we're going to do today, go out and have a bit of a hike through the, uh, the rice fields and things like that. So that'll be cool, hopefully we'll see a bit more, post some more photos there. If you have any questions about the environment here or Bali, I can still see my PC with the chat on it. Um, so look, I just think this has been a it has been a super awesome place. It has felt like a honeymoon insofar as it's a long way from home. We've gotten away from so much stuff. Uh, really haven't thought about all the day-to-day -day runnings of life back there, which has been nice. And uh, yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Anyway, post your questions. I have been disrupted, and this is sort of leading me into the more, the more infosec bit of the, of the usual schedule have been disrupted a lot by this Optus data breach. And I think that this deserves like a, a lot of unpacking. I can't remember doing so much media in such a short amount of time. Now the fact that it happened on my honeymoon, like not ideal, but it's like I'm laying by the pool, yes, I can talk on the phone. So it's been massive, massive news in Australia. Uh, and if you're not from Australia, not familiar with Optus, Optus is our second largest telco. Uh, they're actually owned by Singtel, Singaporean company. They were bought by Singtel, must have been 15 or 20 years ago or something. But uh, yeah, for all intents and purposes, they're a very, very recognisable brand in Australia. They do a lot of sponsorships for sporting events and stadiums and things, so everybody knows who Optus is. And it turns out around about half of, a, of, all, of uh, all of Australians who would be eligible to have some sort of a phone account uh, looks like they might have been impacted on this data breach which is just a massive, massive number. And it's not just the folks like from Australia either. Uh, in a, a funny twist of fate, uh, Scott Helm <laughs> is in the Optus data breach because when he came down for our wedding, he wanted to get a SIM card for when he was in Australia. He got an Optus SIM card. He provided them some of my details. So in a very odd twist of fate, Scott Helm has managed to somehow put me in the Optus data breach whilst visiting for my wedding. Um, I gave him my credit card because <laughs> this is a weird thing, right? Like, and this is what, one of the things I want to talk about with identity verification. So he had to provide identity verification data about him in order to activate the SIM. And in fact, he was having trouble putting his passport details in there. And he kept putting his passport details in there and it just didn't like it for some reason. Maybe because he's on a UK passport, who knows? Uh, but he, he obviously had difficulties doing that one of the other means of identity verification was you can provide an Australian credit card number. Now I want to come back after I sort of do the mechanics of this about where I just think this whole thing is just completely fundamentally messed up. But point is, is that he's in there with roughly 11 million other Aussies. Now part of the problem is we don't actually know what the number is because Optus has gone very... It's not that they've gone completely Iraqi information minister on this, <laughs> because they, they have said things, they've acknowledged that there's been an incident, but they've provided very, very little detail. So very early on, they said, look, uh, name, email, phone number, uh, physical address, and then for a subset of customers, identity documentation, which included passport number and driver's license number. Now, there are multiple issues with this. One of the issues is that they have not said how many. 
Now they should know this because they know how the person got in, they would have known what information was available, they've probably got the logs to be able to see what sort of requests were made and therefore know the volume of exfil data. But they haven't said. Uh, the other problem is it turns out that it's more than just that as well because it also appears to be Medicare numbers. Now for folks of you in other parts of the world, Medicare is our, effectively our government health service. We all have a Medicare number. We would use it if we go to the doctor and we want to get a rebate. Uh, we would also use it if we wanted to potentially prove our identity. So normally when you go and you, let's say you apply for a credit card or something like that, or a phone account, you have to provide say 100 points of identity data and a passport is worth 50 points and a driver's license is 40 points and a Medicare card is, I don't know, 30 points, whatever you want. Uh, just looking at the news popping up. Australian Federal Police launches operation to protect 10,000 something about Optus customers. Just popped up on my phone and I'll get to this because look, it's a big story even for the AFP now as well. So anyway, a bunch of this data has, has been leaked but we just don't know how much. Optus hasn't told us. We have a very good idea of how it happened because Jeremy Kurt, great InfoSec journalist, good mate, has done a lot of really, really good writing on this. And I think that Jeremy has absolutely owned this story, in part because he managed to speak to people either directly involved in the incident, i.e. someone who might have been the one to find <laughs> some of these issues, or other people who had very close knowledge. And it basically boils down to an exposed API. So publicly facing API, no auth, the API would take a phone number and it would come back with a whole bunch of the data that we've just mentioned. I'm still not entirely sure how some results had driver's license and passport and some didn't. Perhaps it's because some people just didn't have to provide that data, or in Scott's case, couldn't provide that data and actually have it accepted. So, you've got this unauthenticated API, takes a phone number, returns data. Now, the, <laughs> the great thing about phone numbers is you can just keep adding one and you get another phone number, potentially another phone number. If you don't, you add another one and maybe you get that. And then, and this is the bit where we're speculating, but this is what generally happens. If you can make enough requests and you can run them in parallel enough and you can enumerate through a very, very large number, you might end up with 11 million, allegedly, records of data. So that the sophistication of this is just off the charts, stupidly simple. It would be really interesting to know how they actually found this open API. But anyway, imagine you've got this open API and they're just enumerating through this. It raises many interesting questions. And to begin with, Optus have not said anything about whether or not this alleged attack vector was actually the one. And, and this again is part of the problem where there just hasn't been much transparency. And in a lot of the media I've been doing, uh, you know, the, the journalists would go, yeah, what, what should Optus do better? So, well, they should tell people what actually happened, <laughs> you know, and tell them how many people it happened to. And I'm sure that as there have been in so many other data breaches I've been involved in, I've spoken to people that have been in the room and they've said, yeah, it's like a lot of lawyers sitting around a table figuring out how to mitigate damage. And I have no doubt that that's what's happening with Optus at the moment. It is now a massive police investigation as well. They may have provided some advice around what should be said or what shouldn't be said. I'm sure they have. But I highly doubt that the advice included uh, to not be transparent about things that the entire internet is already speculating about. So the handling of it hasn't been real great. We've got a massive amount of data. It, it sort of begs this question of why would you have this API? <laughs> so why would you have an API that could accept a phone number and then return all of this data? Is there a, re a, a legitimate need for an individual, for example? Well, possibly. I mean, we've all gone to like the My Account link somewhere on some sort of a service, probably your own telco, and it's shown that data. Uh, did it need to have passport data and driver's license data? I, I can't imagine why that would make sense. And again, I want to come back and talk about this whole problem of identity verification in a moment. There's also the question about why it had no auth. <laughs> now, I'm sure that this is a genuine mistake on Optus's behalf. It is hard to imagine that anyone would create an API like that, have it publicly facing, and just go, yeah, we don't need auth on this. Like at some point, someone really, really cocked that up. And then, of course, there's the question of how was it able to be enumerated en masse without triggering something that shut it down? That's a fascinating question. And, and look, it, it is a hard thing. And even 
even with the very basic APIs on Have I Been Pwned, like trying to stand up APIs that are accessible and available but not abusable is, is actually a very, very hard problem. And there are many companies out there charging very large amounts of money to try and help you solve the problem because it is a difficult one. So there's that. Now, geez, <laughs> where do we go from here? Let me just look at some of the questions here. Neil Caudill says, GDPR fine for Optus somehow. <sighs> there's, there's another rabbit hole here about, uh, let's look at it more broadly, uh, fines from a regulator across jurisdictions. I, Optus may be a little bit different because they are a massive multinational. They're a very, very, very big company. But the number of times I've seen individuals get, uh, individuals, let's say within the EU, under GDPR, get somewhere and then, uh, and then say, I'm going to GDPR you. And then they go to their local regulator and the local regulator, and I've seen the responses. <laughs> I've got a draft blog post with a bunch of this in there. Local regulator literally says, too hard in another part of the world, they're actually outside our jurisdiction. So unless they get cooperation from, let's say, the information, well, actually ICOs in the UK, the, um, oh, geez, holiday mode has completely lost the mind. Our Australian regulator, unless they get cooperation at that level, it's, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to make progress. So that will be interesting. Now, Neil also says, where can we look up if we're in the Optus list? So let's talk about, this is where I wanted to go. Let's talk about the chronology of what happened with the actor responsible for this data. There was initially a blog post on a popular hacking forum where this information was shared. And there was a sample of a couple of hundred records, went up onto this breach forum, and that was sort of the, the, the proof. So this was where everyone went, oh, hang on a moment, this could be serious. Now, Jeremy Kirk, who I mentioned before, went through that list and found a neighbor in the list, and he printed out the neighbor's data walked over to their place, found them outside doing their gardening and went, hey, is this your data? Uh, which I actually thought was a very, very clever way of doing uh, breach verification. Very fortuitous <laughs> when it was only from such a small sample set. Now, the, the attacker said they wanted $1 million <laughs> in order not to dump all the data. Now, it wouldn't matter if it was a $1 million or $10, Optus was never going to pay anything for any of this. It just was not ever going to happen. So this was a bit of a, a bit of a desperate grab by the attacker. Uh, the impression that that many of us have, as we've looked at the sophistication, the attempts I've made, and then the things that have happened next, which we'll talk about in a moment, is that this just fits that very, very predictable demographic of either a child, 15, 16, 17 year old kid somewhere, because let's face it, the sophistication was hard or a very young adult who has possibly gotten themselves in way deeper than what they, what, they, what they intended to in the first place. So let's talk about that. So they went, okay, I want a million dollars, we're gonna dump the data. Now we see this all the time, ransoms for the data. Obviously they didn't get the ransom. Fast forward to a few days ago and they've gone, okay, uh, my million dollars worth of Bitcoin hasn't turned up, so I'm gonna dump 10,000 records. Now, keeping in mind, if we're talking about, let's do round numbers. If we're talking about 10 million records, potentially, and they're only dumping 10,000 records, we're literally talking about 0.1 of a percent of all the data. And then they said, for the next four days, I don't know why four, for the next four days, you're going to dump 10,000 a day. And then everyone's going, oh, holy shit. So now there's all going to be all this data flooding out there. And they dumped the 10,000 in this forum post. Now, a matter of hours later, They've gone, oh, maybe, maybe this isn't a good idea. And there's another, I'm going to look at what, exactly the wording they used here. They, uh, I've been reading through the thread, <laughs> the title of this new thread. So they've deleted the original thread, made a new thread. Uh, Optus data will not be sold or leaked. So this person says, too many eyes. We, we, royal we, we will not sell data to anyone. And of course, then you see the grammar like this and you start going, yeah, is it English second language, child, etc." We can't even if we want to, personally deleted data from OneDrive, only copy. Well, that's good news. <laughs> I guess we can take them at their word. Sorry to 10,200 Australians whose data was leaked. I'll go on. 
Australia will see no gain in fraud. Now that's bullshit, we'll get back to that in a moment. This can be monitored, maybe for 10,200 Australians, but rest of population, no. Okay, so <laughs> Australia will see no gain in fraud, maybe for the people who had the data dumped, but everyone else fine. Very sorry to you, deepest apology to Optus for this. <laughs> Hope all goes well from this. <laughs> and you just, uh, someone's mum has come in and told them to go to their room and think about what they've done. That, like, that's what it feels like. It just feels like, <sighs> you would have thought that maybe the smarter thing to do is if you wanted to go down that road, is just like, just, just go dark, just disappear. Optus, if you're reading this, if you're reading, Y-O-U-R, reading, we would have reported export if you had methods to contact. No security email, no bug bounty, no way to message, T-O-O -O message. Again, just that grammar thing the whole way through. Now, of course, someone could intentionally misdirect by making some funny grammar, but who knows? Now, this was actually a relative, relatively important point insofar as afterwards, I, I did put a tweet out somewhere and I was like, hey, can anyone actually go and find a way to contact Optus Infosec. Now, just to be clear, like none of this excuses dumping your 10,200 records publicly. None of it excuses taking the data in the first place. I would also like to see better ways to contact companies because on so many occasions it has been me ending up on Twitter going, hey, does anyone have a security contact for? And everyone's like, ah, oh, crap, that's not going to be good. They certainly don't have a security.txt file. That's just like it's one. It's just a, just the simplest thing. Uh, there's no vulnerability disclosure policy. There's definitely no bug bounty. Um, had there been a bug bounty, you, you do have to wonder. And a reasonable bug bounty commensurate with the value of the vulnerability that was found, you do have to wonder if this whole thing would have taken a very very different turn. And again, like it doesn't excuse the guy from going like just dumping 10,200 records. But one of the the things I love about the concept of a bug bounty. It is like let's imagine this is the the stereotypical child slash very young person uh, who's found a vulnerability somewhere, stumbled across it. They've got time on their hands. They're bored. They're learning how the world and the internet works, and they find this thing, and they go, "Okay, there's two different roads here. One of these roads is you do what this person has done. The other road is I can get some money for this and not get in trouble." And you just have to think for those people who are otherwise good people, and we're speculating here, but otherwise good people, and they're at that crossroads. The uh, NCSC, in the, no not the NCSC, uh, the NCA in the UK did a really good video series and, and campaign a few years ago where they called it something like, it was pathway something rather, and it was about getting parents to recognise when their kids are possibly heading towards that crossroad. And there's so, so, so many smart people out there who, who could go down the good road and turn out to have an awesome career and do wonderful things, but they just have that little opportunity where they go down the bad road and they end up like this person will possibly end up. And if this person is caught, it's going to be an absolute nightmare. Uh, if they're in Australia, it's, assuming they're an adult, it's, it's undoubtedly criminal record and jail time and all the rest of it. If they're overseas, may they be extradited or are they in a country where that gets a little bit harder? But this has become such headline news with the Australian Federal Police deeply involved, even the Prime Minister talking about it, every level of government, it's on every news channel at the moment. The big news at the moment is uh, replacing driver's licences and passports for people. And then should it be Optus who has to pay for that? And like, yeah, Optus is cocked up, but someone broke in and stole their things as well. You know, <laughs> This guy's not going to pay up, I know that much. So it's become just an absolute mess here. This person does say ransom not paid but we don't care anymore was mistake to scrape published data in the first place. Now the, the use of the word scrape is interesting too because it, it is consistent with what was represented to Jeremy in terms of the way this attack happened and an API that you just enumerate and pull data out of. Now look at some of the comments here. So Neil said where can we look up if we're in the Optus list? I haven't put this in Have I Been Pwned and there's a couple of reasons for it. So number one, the, the idea of have I been pwned is to try and answer that question. Have I been pwned? Like, am I in a breach? And Optus has proactively reached out to people. Scott <laughs> has had a message from Optus for his very, very small time for which he was a customer. Uh, certainly those who have explicitly had identity data exposed, uh, I am t told, led to believe, Optus has reached out to them as well. So if Optus has done that, 
as egregious as their security flaw was, they have done the right thing by contacting individuals. Lots of other things I don't think they've done very well, but they have told that individual they have been pwned. The, the bigger issue, to be honest, is the fact that there is, uh, at, let's call it a tenth of a percent of the impacted audience is out there in this data that is now floating around between tens of thousands, if not more, hands. And if I put that in Have I Been Pwned under Optus and someone searches and they find their data and it's a hit, they can go, okay, sweet, at least now I know I was part of that corpus. But there is a 99.9% .9 chance that someone who was in the breach will not find their data in Have I Been Pwned. So where does that leave them? It leaves them, firstly, probably contacting me and going, hey, you know, like what happened? Was I impacted or not impacted? I don't want to well, it's not that I don't want to, but I just can't deal with thousands of people or more suddenly going, hey, what happened? Uh, some people said, well, you could put a little message on have I been pwned, saying if you are not pwned in the Optus breach, it doesn't mean you're not in the Optus breach. Have I been pwned has, has hundreds of thousands of people a day that use that service. It's got 12 billion records almost in there. Optus is important. It's a big, big thing in Australia. It is a tiny, 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 tiny drop in the bucket. So I don't want to take a service that's meant to be equally accessible to the world and equally relevant no matter where you are in the world and put something very Australia-centric on it. Uh, I do not feel good about that. So I don't intend to, to add it. Now, if the entire corpus was to turn up and before this person redacted their post the other day and then went, is that a monkey? I'll talk about the monkeys later. Uh, <laughs> we've had so many rabies shots and stuff just in case we get ambushed by a monkey. Data breach. <laughs> so I, I just feel that loading that into Have I Been Pwned would create far more problems than what it would solve. If the entire corpus turned up, different story. Uh, so in answer to your question, Neil, you can't look it up in Have I Been Pwned. Now, what that has led to not just you can't look it up and have a been pwned, but I think people's just general curiosity is people going and seeking out the data. Uh, now, I'm not going to say where it is. I will say a lot of people are finding it though. So evidently it's not too difficult to locate. That's not a great outcome because not only does that process retrieve your data, but it retrieves the data, of, depending on which file you download, possibly 10,000 other people. It's out there so much now anyway, does it really matter? Maybe not, but it's not ideal. That's not really the way we'd like to see this thing uh, happen. I have also seen uh, forums out there, particularly on Whirlpool, uh, which is a very popular Australian tech forum, I guess, people talking about how to go through and actually check against another API, which is authenticated, and it will return you the same data, so at least you know what was exposed. What I don't like about all of this is, first of all, you have to be tech savvy enough to actually work this out. And second of all, it puts the onus on the individuals who have been impacted and not the organization responsible. I've said for many, many years, and I think Ashley Madison was kind of the, the, the point where it really hit home, organizations who have been breached should have a mechanism to provide the exposed data to individuals. So Scott should be able to call up Optus right now or send him a message or whatever it may be and use whatever identity verification process is necessary so, for example, does he have to log on to his Optus account and then be shown? But they should be providing him with what was exposed. He shouldn't be out there speculating about how to like scrape an API or F12 his way into the browser and look at the requests and then what was the JSON. Like, this is ridiculous because the vast bulk of Optus customers would have absolutely no idea how to do that because they're normal everyday people. Watching the news has been fascinating to give you an idea of where the, the general level of sophistication is and the questions that people have had about the entire thing. And the, the one that hit home the most, and I, I did share this in a tweet, is uh, there's a lady being interviewed. She's queued up uh, outside Department of Motor Vehicles or whatever they call it in New South Wales, waiting to get a new driver's license. And she said friends of hers are talking about it was something to the effect of, should you change your name and your date of birth? <laughs> like, uh, you got to laugh just a little bit, but I will talk about this identity verification thing in a moment because she's illustrated a really, really good point, which is 
we have so much data which is either immutable, you, you cannot change your date of birth. This is, you know, gender is something that you may redefine at some point. Uh, th that, is, that is an accepted norm today. Uh, that to some degree is, I, I'm not suggesting go and change it after you've been in a data breach just because of that, but that is something which has some degree of fluidity. But date of birth, that, that never changes. Like that is entirely immutable. Things like your driver's license and your passport are a pain in the ass to change. And what I mean by this is that we're seeing, I think I shared one tweet which said something to the effect of 10,000 people yesterday changed their driver's license number in Queensland, which is a massive, massive uptick on the norm. Now remember that sample that was released was only 10,000, but we know that the attacker had much more than that, almost certainly had much more than that. So we've got like a corpus of 11 million people possibly out there and you get maybe 1% of them wanting to change their driver's license number and now there's 100,000 people out there trying to get a new driver's license. It's crazy, crazy times. Look at other comments here. Joel says, I wished I didn't get Optus SIM card to test a Hack 5 land turtle. <laughs> it's the irony, isn't it, Joel? Where it's like, I wanted to do some infosec stuff, yeah, possibly to make the world a better place and now I'm in the Optus data bridge. So now you've got to decide, right? Like, do you change the driver's license number or not? I put um, a question out there the other day about identity theft services, or identity protection services, whatever you want to call them. I'm really, really curious to hear if people have had good experiences with those. There is one I use, I won't tell you which one it is, uh, and I have used since the 90s. And it, it was mostly so that I knew about credit inquiries. Uh, and it has been very useful, it's, it's never caught something fraudulent, but at least I know I'd get that very, very quickly if it did. I know that some of them out there will do things like bundle have I been pwned into it as well, which seems like a good idea. Uh, but I'm curious if anyone has had either good or bad experiences with uh, identity theft slash protection services, I'd really like to know about it because this whole sort of discussion now about someone's been in data breach, what the hell do I do? We don't know. And it's identity documents which have been exposed. It's a tricky one. Brendan says, have they only reached out by email? I don't recall having added an email to my account when I was with Optus. Well, this is what's also not clear, and, and this again is where I feel that there's just been a, a lack of transparency from Optus. And there's multiple problems here. Was it only email? Did they send an SMS? I mean, let's face it, they have the phone numbers. And also, as many people have pointed out, some of this data goes back so far, what if it's changed? I've shared a couple of tweets from people where they've said, I think one of them said uh, they haven't had an account for the last six years. One of them said they hadn't had an account for the last 20 years. Now, what if 20 years later your email address is different or your phone number is different? You might argue maybe the breach doesn't matter as much if these two things, which are kind of like primary keys to your life, if they're different. But you still want to know, right? It's still your data. And it's still your name. It's still your date of birth. It's still your gender. It's still your home address. Like all of that stuff is still yours and it's been exposed. So how does Optus reach those people? Is it even possible? to feasibly reach those people? Do they have to send a snail, snail mail and an SMS and an email and just go, look, that's gonna catch 99% of cases? I don't know. So it's not clear, Brendan. Stratus says, it's funny, my dad has two dates of birth. One that he was actually born on and the other on his birth cert, that is two days apart. Fun story, my grandmother was, was the same, it was one day apart. Uh, she, forever and a day, I'm trying to remember which way it was, she, I think it was she thought her birthday was Christmas Day and then it turned out to be Boxing Day when she got her birth certificate late in life. <laughs> so we're always like having this birthday on the same day. But I, I guess there is one date of birth and it's just a question of which is the, like the canonical one which is then used. Now this raises other questions. I want to start sort of transiting into the discussion about um, identity verification. and. Any moment, my beautiful wife is going to come back from her yoga. So this is, she does yoga, I do videos. Um, <laughs> you don't have to tiptoe. You don't have to tiptoe. Do you want to say hello? <laughs> you look like you're in trouble. <laughs> All right, I got it working, eventually. Where were we? Identity verification. So the... Uh, I think a lot of the heart of the problem here is why did Optus have to have all of this data and for so long 
And equally, why does it now pose all these other problems? A lot of the, the press around what are we going to do differently in future has focused on either like more penalties or it's focused on, you know, one of the things that's been in the news is banks should get earlier access to information about customers and data breaches that, that could impact their banking accounts. And I don't disagree with those, but it, it kind of feels like a band-aid and, and, and the root cause is still under there and we're going, you know, this root cause is just like bleeding data. How do we like band-aid over the top of it so it doesn't bleed as much, but we've still got this infection that, that needs to be fixed. So I think about the, the folks, let's start with the easy ones. If you had an Optus account and you have not had it for the last 20 years, why does Optus still have this data? Yeah, what is their process around purging that? Even six years ago, it is hard to imagine why you would need to have that data. Bring it a little bit closer to home. Let's say for Scott's situation, now I don't think they have his passport data, but let's imagine they did. We're now in this space where people argue uh, mandatory metadata retention laws. So Australia was in the news a few years ago for uh, metadata retention laws, which nobody really understood. <laughs> That's a lot, of, a lot of misunderstanding there about what it actually held. So, and even our Attorney General was very famous, George Brandis. Just Google like George Brandis metadata. Was very famous for having absolutely no idea what it meant and just stumbling his way through trying to explain it. The, the intention was for the likes of telcos to retain data such that if terrorism, pedophilia, all the nasty stuff we want to try and stamp out, was to occur against a number, there would be traceability. Uh, now there are lots of issues with that because people say, well, you know, you just go to Signal or Telegram or use a VPN or do any of these other things to obfuscate your IP address and hide your, your evil, evil ways. Uh, and they're right, there are many ways to do that. But of course there are also many people that, that start to go down that path and have observable behaviour by telcos which could later on be used to implicate them in a crime. So privacy issues aside, like there is value to it. Now it, it turns out most of this boiled down to very, very simple data being able to uh, keep, effectively trace who was communicating with who or what IP address was communicating with, uh, with the provider at the time. Even I'm struggling to explain it all again. But from memory, a lot of it was like, okay, so this person was connected to the telco at this time and this was their IP address. Now, because of things like the extensive use of end-to-end -end encryption and TLS everywhere, the telco may well not even know who you were talking to, but they will know that you were connected at this time. I almost feel like that's a different category to how long do we keep your identifiable data. Let's say for Scott, once they establish who he is, do they need to keep his passport number? And this is where I think we've got to get to better, better, uh, better solutions. And the American social security number thing keeps coming up in my brain because the number of issues in the US when social security numbers get leaked and they're like the worst held secret ever. Or the driver's license situation, even for folks on here. You know, we've got Joel, he wants to test a land turtle. Okay, you need to be able, let's imagine there's legislation here, we need to be able to map the SIM back to an identity. Once you know it's Joel at this address and this phone number, do you need to know his driver's license? Like, does that provide enough additional value to offset the risk, which we've now seen come to fruition with the doctor's data breach? I think we've got to take a much better look at that. It, it is crazy to be sitting on this data post-verification. Equally, it's crazy that we are so dependent on this data for verification and it is so useful and so important and so likely to be abused that people literally have to go out and change it after exposure. I mean, it's nuts. And I know it's not just a driver's license, but it's all the other data that you would then map together with it. But it's nuts that just a number poses such a, such a risk. Particularly in an era where we're walking around with amazing authentication devices. I'm talking on one there, I've got another one on my wrist. We have so many different ways of doing identity verification these days with higher levels of assurance than just passing around a number. Why, why are we still storing this and then using it to prove your identity somewhere else? Now it's, it's messy and it's nuanced because then we end up with all of these different, different situations of but we need to know who people are uh, for all sorts of reasons. Banks, KYC. I got an email from Coinbase yesterday 
and the amount of invasive information they want to know because KYC, know your customer, is, is just nuts. I'm just not going to give them a bunch of what they're asking for. It's literally like, give us your bank statements. It's like, no. <laughs> All I want to do is like, accept some donations. That's it. Uh, and then, of course, on the other side of that, we've got this privacy issue. So if we provide all of this information for identity verification, we provide something that is very private and sensitive. And let's say the Coinbase thing with the KYC and the bank statements, there's this really uncomfortable truth, and we see this throughout InfoSec, which is the more private information we give up, the better the services we're using are able to protect us. Think about that for a moment. I'll, I'll give you a good example. Um, Back when I used to enjoy just proxying mobile apps and seeing what they're doing, and I wrote this up at the time, one of the things I noticed is the PayPal app was taking your internal SSID and sending it back to PayPal. So imagine you're, you know, you're here and I'm connected to Capella, Uber, whatever, whatever network. The PayPal app would take that and send it to them. You don't need approval in the app. This is not like accessing your contacts or your geolocation or the microphone or camera. It could just happen in the background. That's personal. That's, that's private. I might be in a location where the SSID discloses where I am. And if you don't know how easy that is, try wiggle.net, W-I-G-L-E.net, and have a look at all the SSIDs that have been mapped around the world. So I might be somewhere where I don't want to disclose that. And implicitly, without my knowledge, it's just been sent to an American company doing payment systems. But it's also very useful for them because that is an indicator of authenticity. And, and what I mean by that is that if I'm constantly connecting via the same SSID and then suddenly I'm on something completely different, it doesn't mean that it's not me, but in terms of all the points that you add up to try and figure out whether this is a legitimate request or not, that's an anomaly. The fact I'm here in Indonesia is an anomaly. Uh, my IP address would be different. Okay, we know that gets sent with everything, but something like an SSID, very, very personal. And again, the, the point I'm making is that we have these competing objectives between protecting privacy and protecting things like either our money or our society. Oh, that rant off my chest. <laughs> what else is on here? JK1954 says, let's not forget almost all of this information used to be available in the white pages. And you know what it still is? Uh, fun story, very often when I'm at home, I'll tweet a photo of a beautiful sunset, or I'll fly the drone and I'll go, hey, how awesome does it look today? And without fail, someone will DM me and they'll go, <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to alarm you, but I looked at the angle of the sun and the height of the tide at the time and how far off we were from the summer solstice, uh, and I think I figured out where you live, <laughs> based on the data in the photo. And I'm like, why don't you just use a phone book, or like a business registry, or like any other means, and there's a lot of means out there, of figuring out where I live. So even things like a name and an address is information that we cannot solely rely on for identity verification. That's just crazy. C. Morgan says, post-verification is the key aspect to me. You've validated the identity. Yeah, and again, this is the point. It's like, once you've validated the identity, what do you need to keep? Some people have said, oh, I just keep a hash of the number. That's, that's, that's not good. <laughs> it's a hash of a number. You know how fast it is to make hashes? Not a good strategy. But there must be another mechanism by which we are able to say, we know who this person is, and we're going to store enough data to identify them, but we're going to make sure it's data that if it gets disclosed, it's not going to lead to the problems we've got now. C. Morgan says, now get rid of it and then tokenize it or whatever, but don't hold the original identity verifier. Yeah, and you know, the original identity verifier in terms of the driver's license number or the passport number or whatever other, whatever other piece of data it was, that's the thing that we just do not need to sit on for perpetuity. So, wrapping up, I think that the trick now is going to be what changes, if anything, as a result of this, this breach. Uh, I almost accidentally said as a result of this Ashley Madison data breach because back then there was a big discussion about what will change now. Is this the watershed moment? And of course it wasn't and nothing of any substance has changed. And even the likes of GDPR, do you see less data breaches now? It's like, no, <laughs> you don't. You just get more emails about them when they happen. 
I don't know what's going to change as a result. I know what I'd like to see change as a result of this, and it's all the identity verification stuff we just discussed, uh, as well as everything from better contactability for InfoSec resources and having bug bounties uh, and also not leaving your APIs out there publicly facing with no auth <laughs> would be another, another good tip, Optus. I don't know that any of that is actually going to have much impact. Uh, we are seeing a lot of targeted fraud against individuals now. That's why I laughed a little bit at this person's message before. That targeted fraud is not just against the folks in the 10,000 because remember there's all these other folks that are in there as well. And we're seeing fraud such as uh, SMSs asking for money in order not to publish your data. Makes me think of Vastamo, the Finnish psychotherapy site a couple of years ago, where they're like, they tried to ransom the company, they didn't pay us. So I was like, okay, we'll just ransom all the poor people in there who've got their uh, clinical notes now exposed on the internet. So we're definitely seeing fraud of that sort of nature and a whole bunch of other styles of fraud as well, because people are now expecting to go and change their driver's license number and their passport number. And if you've got someone like the lady I just mentioned before, where she's like, do I now have to change my date of birth? And she's getting an SMS going, hey, you know, you've got to take this action, just click here and enter your credit card details. Well, yeah, it's going to be massive amounts of fraud out of this. And what's sucky as well is that a lot of this fraud may be under the banner of Optus, but it may be with data that's got nothing to do with Optus. And then there may be a lot of fraud that isn't using the Optus banner, but it's using the data from those 10,200 records. We will never know the true extent of this incident. We'll never know, absolutely never. See, Morgan says, lots of lessons to learn, but easier to beat up an Optus. Yeah, and again, look, particularly the bits where Optus is following regulatory obligations, there's someone else we should beat up on when it comes to that. And that's, that's going back to government and going, look, why do you demand all of this data uh, just because terrorism and yeah, other other reasons that may not hold enough water to justify them being in place. I think that's, that's a good place to leave it. Okay, well look, I'm glad this worked out eventually. Thanks for joining me here. I'll be back home. I'll be back home next week. Week after, I'm gonna be at NDC Sydney. They've got NDC Oslo on at the moment. For the folks over there, I've gotta get back to Australia. Uh, I'll be in Sydney. I will be doing, I'll be doing the party talk again. The fun talk. The one that's not recorded. The one that each time I've done it so far has resulted in the audience at one point saying, ooh. Yeah, so come along to Sydney. <laughs> You'll see what I mean. Thanks, folks. I'm off to enjoy the rest of my honeymoon, and I'll see you from somewhere else sunny next week.